buddy. Great, thank you so much. Uh, it, it's great to uh, be here. Uh, it's great to uh, see you all. Uh, I remember meeting Mark the first time in October uh, last year, and uh, I, I didn't know you could get to be good friends with someone over WhatsApp. So over the last couple of months, we've become really good friends, and uh, it's great to be here uh, with you all this morning. Uh, um, yeah, I, I, what a strange time to be in, right? I mean, uh, to be able to uh, be more local than we've ever been before, and at the same time, be more global than we've ever been before. So here I am in New Delhi, and uh, you know, speaking to, to a church in Australia, and uh, what a great uh, uh, privilege, even at a difficult time like this. So uh, I, I want to kind of speak to you today from uh, uh, the book of Lamentations. It's uh, it's the kind of book that most Christians don't know what to do with. You know, we we don't know what a book like this is doing in the Bible because it's just so full of someone speaking so freely about how difficult life is and about how, uh, how many complaints they have against God. And, uh, and it seems that they've been given a lot of freedom to do that. And uh, it's, I remember when I was a, a teenager, uh, if you had a, a heartbreak or a rejection, you would go to a sad love song. That was your go-to uh, therapy for getting over what just happened. And uh, if you were if you were feeling empty, you would listen to I'm All Out of Love. You know, if you were angry, you would listen to Bon Jovi's You Give Love a Bad Name. If you were defiant, you would listen to I Will Survive. And if you were cynical, you would listen to Love is a Battlefield. And uh, I don't know what it's like in Australia and whether those songs were ever popular, but uh, uh, sad love songs are kind of a watered down version of a lament. You know, and, and lament is actually a, a form of prayer. And uh, it's, it's not uh, the only form of prayer, but it is a form of prayer. And it's, a, it's one of the most neglected forms of prayer. Uh, and Lamentations teaches us how to lament. And it actually tells us that lamenting is not a sign of a lack of faith. It's actually a sign of a robust faith. It's actually a sign of a deep trust in God, that you can have a free relationship with him. And he invites you to that. So. Uh, and I, I, I think if you think about the situation we're in, you know, we're in this coronavirus situation and, and a virus is kind of uh, harmless until it gets into your body. Once it gets into your body, that's when the danger is there. And, and suffering is like that. Suffering is most harmful uh, when it gets into your heart and it gets to, your, uh, to the core of your system. And then it's two times suffering because you've got the situation that you're suffering with and you're dealing with the suffering that's gone to your heart. And a lament, uh, just like washing our hands is a way of keeping the virus out, a lament is a way of cleansing our heart so, so that the suffering we're feeling is just situational and we can deal with it without it going to our hearts and without it having a, a double effect on us. So I'm gonna uh, speak to you from the second chapter of Lamentations and uh, I'm just gonna uh, uh, focus on this, this one verse that's in uh, chapter two, verse one, but I'm gonna kind of point to different parts of the lament to kind of give us a sense of what the prophet is saying. Uh, and we're going to see three things as we go through this passage. You're going to see one that suffering is real. Uh, we're going to see that uh, God is real. And we're going to see that hope is real. So we're going to see suffering is real. We're going to see God is real. And we're going to see that hope is real. Uh, so let me read to you from chapter two, verse one. Uh, How the Lord has covered daughter Zion with the cloud of his anger. He has hurled down the splendor of Israel from heaven to earth. He has not remembered his footstool 
in the day of his anger. Uh, that's the first verse I want, to, I want us to think about. And uh, let me read a couple of other verses from different parts of Lamentation so you get a sense of what the prophet is saying. Let's go to chapter, uh, chapter 1 and just begin with how, uh, just look at what he says. Uh, Lamentation chapter 1, verse 1 onwards. How deserted lies the city, once so full of people. How like a widow is she, who once was great among the nations. She who was queen among the provinces, has now become a slave. Bitterly, she weeps at night. Tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, there is no one to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. After affliction and harsh labor, Judah has gone into exile. She dwells among the nations. She finds no resting place. All who pursue her have overtaken her in the midst of her distress. Let me read a couple more verses from chapter two. Uh, Without pity, the Lord has swallowed up all the dwellings of Jacob. In his wrath, he has torn down the strongholds of daughter Judah. He has brought her kingdom and its princes down to the ground in dishonor. In verse four, uh, the prophet describes God. He says, like an enemy, he has strung his bow. His right hand is ready like a foe. He has slain all who were pleasing to the eye. He has poured out his wrath like fire on the tent of daughter Zion. And let me read some of my favorite uh, verses in this lament. In chapter 3, he says in verse, uh, uh, let me read to you from 7 onwards. He has walled me in so that I cannot escape. He has weighed me down with chains. Even when I call out or cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has barred my way with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. And this is this next verse is one of my favorites. I, I, it's just amazing what he says here. He says about God, like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in hiding. He dragged me from the path and mangled me and left me without help. He drew his bow and made me the target for his arrows. He pierced my heart with arrows from his quiver. I became the laughing stock of all my people. They mock me in song all day long. I mean, at some point, you've got to wonder, what is a book like this doing in the Bible? You know, aren't we supposed to be always, uh, always victorious, always hopeful, always joyful? You know, what's a book like this doing in the Bible? And I think one of the things that we sometimes neglect or uh, are unable to appreciate as Christians is that the Bible actually gives us rich resources for overcoming suffering. You know, as Christians, we are actually most equipped to suffer well, but often least aware of it. We're most equipped to suffer well, but often least aware of it. Uh, and you think about the history of, uh, of the people who wrote the Old Testament. The Old Testament is a hard book to read. Uh, and it's usually a hard book to read until and unless you've suffered, unless you've been through something hard. And then it begins to make sense because now you're in the company of fellow sufferers. Now, I live in India and, and uh, we're very familiar with suffering. I mean, suffering is at, is at my doorstep. It's, it's a, when this whole lockdown situation uh, came about. Uh, I mean, those of us who uh, are a little bit comfortable in our lives, we have homes, we can, we're, we're safe in our homes, right? But uh, half of the country lives in poverty. And as soon as the lockdown happened, uh, people in Delhi who are daily wage laborers, they live 
they basically depend on a job for the day. And if they don't get a job that day, they don't get food that day. So suddenly these people have no life and they've not, they've left their villages and towns to come to Delhi. And the city was in lockdown and suddenly all these people have to go back home, but there's no transport. There's no buses, there's no trains, there's nothing. So they walk home. They, they're walking hundreds, hundreds uh, uh, and thousands of kilometers trying to get home. And uh, recently it was discovered that uh, there was a cement mixer on the highway. It was stopped by the cops. They pulled the uh, mixer over, uh, pulled it over, looked into the cement mixer and there are 18 people sitting inside the cement mixer trying to get home. I mean, this is, this is the reality that we live in. And in a reality like that, uh, this is what the element like this is very important. So people who have suffered understand the need to lament. They understand the need to be able to be in the company of those who've suffered. And, uh, and, and they lament. Uh, and if you look at this passage, you know, why do they lament? They lament because of what's happened. I mean, they, uh, here is the prophet. And the first word in, in, the, in the lament is this word that in the English translates as how. But it's a hard kind of word to translate because what it really means is, uh, so, uh, is something like, uh, it, or you can't, you can't translate it with, in a single word, but it has the sense of look at this. Just look at this. Look at what's happening. How can this be happening? I, 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 can, I, I can see what's happening, but I can't believe what I'm seeing. You know, I, uh, uh, I never thought that this could happen. And I, and I can't believe what's happening. And it's the sense of, uh, and that's, that's, that's the important thing about a lament, because what a lament is doing, it's inviting us to look at our suffering. It's inviting us to look at our suffering. See, there's, there's two things we kind of do when we go through hard times. Either we kind of suppress it and just pretend like it's not there and just keep going and push through, or we indulge in it, we drown in it. We give ourselves wholly to it. And the prophet is kind of giving us a third way of saying, just, just look at your suffering. So he's not allowing you to escape, but he's not, he's not desiring for you to drown in it. He just, he wants you to look at it and recognize this is real. This is real. And he gives you these, these, a number of uh, images throughout uh, the lament. And uh, uh, it's very important to think about why uh, a lament is important for our suffering, right? Uh, and you, you remember all the things that I've just read out to you from, from this lament. And the, I think the important thing we need to ask at a time like this is, you know, ha have you ever prayed like this? Have you ever prayed with this kind of freedom? with this kind of permission to, to say what's in your heart, uh, not, not just to your friend or uh, in, a, in, a, in a way of venting, because lamenting is not venting. Lamenting is not kind of giving free reign, stream of consciousness kind of stuff. This is actually a very organized lament. So if you look at the, the five chapters, there's 22 verses in each chapter, and uh, they're, they're all, the verses are written according to the Hebrew alphabet. So it's almost like uh, if it was written in English, the first sentence would start with A, the second sentence with B, the third with C, and the fourth with D. So it's really organized, this whole thing. And then uh, and, and there's a meaning to that structure because what the prophet is trying to say uh, is it's, just, it's like the Amazon logo. If you see the Amazon logo, it's got that arrow from the A to the Z. Uh, and the prophet is basically trying to say, listen, everything that could go wrong in somebody's life, 
but I've seen it. I've been through the A to Z of suffering. Like I, I know suffering intimately. I know it completely. There's nothing about suffering that I don't know. And this is the company of people that we are, we've been brought into to recognize that suffering is real and, and not to turn our eyes away from it, but to look at it. And, I, and I, I, I don't know what it's like in Australia. I don't know what it's like in your context, but uh, for most people, I would assume there's too much our eyes have seen uh, that we've not lamented. There's too much that our eyes have seen that we've not, that we've not grieved over. We just try to get past it. We just try to push it, push past it and say, oh, that was a long time ago. I don't have, there's no point in dealing with that. Or we, we, we are very defined by it. We drown in it. Our identity is wrapped up in it. And uh, th those are two uh, ineffective ways of looking at it. And the prophet actually invites us first to say suffering is real. And uh, I, I think if, if, you, uh, if you read a, a book, you know, uh, mo most books, the first chapter of a good book will give you the themes that are developed throughout the rest of the story. And the same is true of our lives. You know, the first years of our lives kind of form the themes that uh, run through the rest of our lives. And if we, don't, if we don't look at the first few years of our lives and recognize what went wrong there, uh, it's, it's difficult uh, for the rest of our lives. And I, what I can I tell you how this worked out for me because uh, our, our typical tendency is to turn away. So uh, when I got married, I genuinely believe, this is not a joke, I genuinely believed that, I, that my wife lucked out. I genuinely believe that she she was the she was the lucky one, and uh, uh, but within a couple of years, uh, I realized I, an anger came out of my uh, heart that I didn't know was there, and in the first couple of years, uh, uh, this entire illusion that I had of being a good person, a good Christian who lived by the book, was shattered, and uh, within the, in the third year of our marriage. I was sitting next to my wife and saying, listen, I, I've become the person that I never thought I would be. I hate myself. I think we should end this. I don't think we can go on because I want to spare you uh, what I'm doing to you and I don't want to live like this anymore. And, and that conversation kind of ended with, okay, let's just uh, give it one more shot. And over a series of uh, events, uh, I got into relationships with people who invited me to look at my suffering who invited me to look at my family and where did this anger come from? Because anger is kind of a masking emotion, right? It's the light on your dashboard that says something's wrong. But when the light is, goes off on your dashboard, you don't go to the mechanic and say, hey, the light on my dashboard is broken. You actually look under the hood. You go to the, you, you open the bonnet and you kind of check what's under there and see what's wrong. So anger is like that. And anger invites you to say, okay, what, what's really going on here? And I realized a lot of my anger, this, I'm putting a very long story short, but I, raised, I realized a lot of my anger was rooted in my relationship with my dad uh, that for the longest time I thought was actually pretty okay. And it wasn't, it wasn't until I was 35 years old uh, that I realized uh, I had a dysfunctional childhood. Uh, and because when you're a child, the, this is the only childhood you know, this is the only home you know. So you kind of realize, you assume that uh, this, is, this must be normal. But it, was, it wasn't until I was 35 years old and found a new church family and found friends who, who loved me and cared for me enough to invite me to look at my suffering and to lament and to grieve and to realize that I had a lot to grieve over. And, uh, and, the, and the cure for uh, my anger was not 
anger management or anything like that, although all that stuff is helpful. It was really to, to pull out that thorn in the flesh and to have that deep wound healed. And lament was a huge part of that. So uh, I want you to know suffering is real, uh, but the prophet invites us to look at it and not look away from it. And the second thing uh, we, we, we we're going to see is that God is real. You know, and in, uh, throughout this chapter, in, in, uh, uh, in chapter two, uh, actually throughout the book of Lamentations, right? You've got the prophet talking and talking and talking and, and God remains totally silent. But literally there's only one thing that God says throughout the whole book. I won't tell you what it is yet, but there's only one thing God says throughout the whole book. But throughout the whole book, it's the prophet who's speaking. It's the prophet who's talking. And you've got to wonder, why is God silent? And it's very simple. He's listening. He's listening. Isn't it hard to find somebody who just listens to you? Without waiting for you to stop speaking so that they can tell you what they think? Without kind of interrupting you with some advice? without kind of just, hey, hey, I know exactly how to fix your problem. Just do what I say. No, God is listening. He's paying attention. He's concerned. See, when I was in, in Bible college, we had, I was interested in theology classes. I wasn't interested in anything else. And we had this counseling course that I kind of slept through. But uh, the one thing I remember from that counseling course was what the counselor told us. He said, uh, all counseling is listening. It's listening. I don't know whether that's true or not, but if that's true, God is a good counselor. Because when you're lamenting, he's not saying, hey, hey, don't talk like that about me. He's not saying, hey, no, 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 no. You, you behave yourself now. Let me remind you of what's theologically true. Okay, let me get your theology right. No, he's not, he's not doing any of that. He, he's listening. He's listening to the, the prophet say things like, uh, like a bear lying in wait. Like a lion in hiding, he dragged me from the path and mangled me and left me without help. See, we don't give ourselves permission to say the things to God that he gives us permission to say. God is, God is listening and, it's, and it's, it's like he's, 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 he's facing you, his eyes are on you, he's giving you his attention and he's listening to you. Uh, and the, in the rest of the uh, chapter, you're going to see uh, in chapter two, the first eight verses, about 28 verses have to do with destruction, right? And, and all of them, as far as the prophet is concerned, are being done by God. God is doing this. And we know from the story, it's actually Babylon. Right? And Babylon is ISIS times 10. I mean, imagine if ISIS was a global superpower. What would they do? That's Babylon. Babylon goes into Assyria, go, goes into Jerusalem because God has removed his protection from Jerusalem because Jerusalem has removed him from their hearts. So after centuries of warning, centuries of warning, he pulls the hand back. And ISIS goes in and they do their worst. They do their worst to everything. Man, woman, child, homes, property, everything. And here's the prophet looking at all of that destruction looking at that city and saying uh, uh, he has bent his bow and like an enemy, he has treated me. And, 
and so it's important to recognize, as far as the prophet's concerned, this is not a philosophical question. This is a personal complaint. This is a personal thing. He's invested. This has happened to him. And you've got to ask yourself, you know, look at this is the kind of freedom that the prophet's given to bring his complaint to God. And I, you're going to see throughout the, later on in the passage, the lament moves from, uh, you know, uh, you did this to me uh, and changes to, you know, you know what, we did this to ourselves. We did this to ourselves. So that's how a lament moves. But in the beginning, this is how it begins. He, he's beginning by saying this. And I want, to, I want to ask you, what kind of powerful person would give his people the power to question him? See, uh, I, I even ask you, what kind of government would give freedom to its journalists to criticize them? See, you have SCOMO, but we have NAMO. NAMO is our prime minister, Narendra Modi. And under his government, uh, India was ranked 140 out of 180 countries on the most recent World Press Freedom Index. So we're 140th on the list of countries that have the freedom to ask questions. You know, that's because powerful people don't give us that freedom because they're concerned about their power. They're concerned they might lose it. They're insecure, but they don't want to lose any of that. But what kind of a king hears a complaint like this and then says, hey, you know what, let's publish this so that the whole world, every nation on the face of the earth for the next 2,500 years can read this and hear what this prophet is saying about me. You know, for a king, even the best kings who have give them give people permission to ask questions, they probably do it privately. But here is God saying, listen, if you brought this complaint, I want every person who knows me to know this, to hear this about me. And it's incredible. And the only kind of king who will do that is a king who is truly secure in himself. See, a, a lament won't threaten God. A complaint won't change who he is. No question can wound him about the only thing that may grieve him is your silence. Is that you're grieving, but you're not talking to him. That you're struggling, but you're not turning to him. That you're, that you're weak, but you don't want him to be your strength. And that you're lost, but you don't want to ask him for directions. That's about the only thing that might grieve him. A lament will not change who God is. But a lament could change who you become. It could deeply change who you become. And, uh, and it's important to kind of see this is a public lament, not a private one, right? Uh, I remember when I was uh, a teenager, uh, I don't know if this is uh, a trend in Australia and it might be a little uh, oversharing, but when I was uh, a teenager, I had a diary. I had a diary in which I would write my feelings every day and I would go to school and I say, I met this person and they said that and I didn't like it and I felt bad and uh, things like that. So it, 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 it was a diary was basically Twitter before there was Twitter, but it was private. And about the worst thing that could happen to me was if somebody read my diary. That's about the worst uh, feeling of shame that would ever overcome me. And, uh, and that's what I was like when I was a teenager, but you know, uh, it, the fact is a lot of us are like that when we're adults. Uh, we, we don't want to be seen. We don't want to be seen for who we are. We don't want to be seen for what we're uh, really feeling. Uh, we, we, we kind of uh, manage our impression. We, we, we want to be seen strong. We don't want to be seen weak. 
We want to be seen successful. We don't want to be seen vulnerable. We want to be seen in our glory. We don't want to be seen in our shame. Uh, but there's a show that I, that my wife and I watched uh, in which she, this, this lead character, she's sitting in a confessional uh, with this uh, priest and it's, it's one of the most vulnerable scenes in the show. And she kind of, he's kind of asking her to, uh, you know, say what she feels and she's not a Christian. She's far from it. And, and she says this after, after uh, a number of uh, things, she says this, uh, I want someone to tell me what to wear in the morning. I want someone to tell me what to wear every morning. I want someone to tell me what to eat, what to like, what to hate, what to rage about, what to listen to, what band to like, what to buy tickets for, what to joke about, what not to joke about. I want someone to tell me what to believe in, who to vote for, who to love and how to tell them. I just think I want someone to tell me how to live my life, Father, because so far I think I've been getting it wrong. And I know that's why people want people like you in their lives because you just tell them how to do it. You just tell them what to do and what they like get out at the end of it. And even though I don't believe in it, I know, and I know that scientifically nothing I do makes any difference in the end anyway, I'm still scared. Why am I still scared? And after that show, after that episode aired, uh, there was just a huge reaction to it. There was an article written in which uh, somebody says, she's speaking to her audience and on behalf of her audience. It's a mission statement for the show because what the speech offered I think was words to put these feelings, which sometimes gnaw at me. Am I a good person? Am I living my life right? How can I be better in a world that feels like it's becoming more diseased by the day? You know, there's, there's, a, there's a power and a freedom that comes from lamenting publicly, from doing it in a community, from turning to a person and say, listen, uh, I want you to see me as I am, not, you know, not through a filter. I want you to see the real me. And so when we, when, when we know that God is real, we can lament with him freely and we can lament with one another freely. And there's power in that. But how do you do this? How do we find the freedom to lament well? And how do we uh, take both God to be real and suffering to be real at the same time? Uh, we've got to see that hope is real. And I kind of want to just think about this verse that we just looked at. So, in uh, verse chap chapter 2, verse 1, how the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. Now, this, uh, I want you to think about that second sentence. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. Now, uh, the splendor uh, of, of New York was the Twin Towers. I remember when I was, uh, I think I was uh, 21 years old uh, and uh, we were watching the news and we heard, about, we heard about the first tower falling and then we put on the TV and I saw the plane crash into the second tower and the towers fell down and collapsed, right? And uh, we saw that live. But what a shock when they, when, it, when they fell down. What a shock when this happened because the splendor of New York came to crashing to the ground. Now, the splendor of Israel was the temple. The temple is the, is, the, is the splendor of Israel. The temple is the link between heaven and earth. 
it's kind of that connecting door between uh, in hotel rooms between heaven and earth so you kind of if you if you uh, want to meet with god you turn to the temple it was a symbol of his divine favor it was a symbol of his presence uh, it was a seal of his commitment like an engagement ring and when when the temple is destroyed it's almost as if if you were in a relationship with someone they take off their engagement ring they throw it on the ground and then say i don't I'm, i don't want this anymore that's what it felt like to israel that the temple is destroyed and it's almost as if if we're in lockdown and the internet crashes how would you feel that's double lockdown when you can't connect like this with anyone you've lost the connection and that's the that's what was happening uh, and that's why it's a shock that's why the the prophet says i can see what's happening but i can't believe what i'm seeing i i i i i and he he's asking the question how can this be happening but what is more shocking is when uh, he does something even more devastating than that not to a building but to a body not to a physical temple but to the true temple not to the daughter of zion but to the son of god because at the cross in his, in the day of his anger god sets jesus on the cross under the cloud of his anger and it's not the splendor of israel but the splendor of the whole universe that is thrown down not just from heaven to earth but from the earth to the bottom of the to the bottom to the uh, to the lowest of the low to the death of criminal to the cross and it's not just uh, it's it's a kind that's the that's the true kind of suffering where you look at it and you say i can i can see what's happening but i can't believe what i'm seeing how can this be happening how can the lord of the universe be a crucified criminal how can the splendor of the universe be cast down like this and it's and i want you to know when you look at the cross it's the only time in the world where you are looking at where uh, at both god and suffering at the same time it's the only point in history where both where god is real and suffering is real at the same time he's fully god and fully in the in the heat of suffering and he's 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 it's the ultimate show of solidarity it's the ultimate show of i'm in this with you i'm in this for you and i want you to see that so for every time you look at your suffering you need to look 10 times at the cross 10 times at the cross and you've got to be asking why is this happening because uh uh you remember when jesus was at the, at the at the physical temple and he tells uh, them destroy this temple and i will raise it up in 3 days and wh- why was he destroyed he was destroyed so that uh, he would be raised from the dead and so that we can become a temple that can never be forsaken so the father sends the son to the cross so that the son can send his spirit into our hearts and so that we can become a temple and we can become the display of his splendor in the world we can be agents through which people can can see what god is doing in us and we could, but more than that we become the temple on which he has set his seal and say this belongs to me and this will always belong to me this is mine and i will display my splendor in this temple that temple means the church gathered together it means you as an individual 
who, who has the spirit of God living in you through faith in Christ. Uh, and that's why in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul is writing to these Corinthians and the Corinthians are, uh, are you know, well-read, they're, they're, uh, they're intellectuals, they're successful, uh, they're, they're, they're known for all kinds of speech and knowledge. And here Paul asks this pointed question, do you not know? You know, it's like asking a bunch of scholars and PhDs, do you not know? You know all this stuff. You know all the stuff about all the world. But do you not know that you are God's temple? Do you not know that God's spirit dwells in you? And if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. He has made us his temple. And that means he's not going to forsake us. That our hope is real. I remember when uh, we watched The Lord of the Rings, the second movie, uh, there's a scene in which Frodo is got, has got the ring and he's kind of face to face with the Nazgul and, and the Nazgul's kind of seducing Frodo and he's about to turn over to the dark side and, uh, kind of, uh, and uh, Sam kind of drags him away and uh, Frodo turns on Sam. He's almost about to stab him in the heart and then he comes to his senses. And then he, he, he's kind of uh, uh, disillusioned and he says, you know, I, I can't do this, Sam. I can't do this. And, and Sam says, uh, I, I know, uh, it's all wrong. It's all wrong. By, by rights, we shouldn't even be here. Uh, and you can hear thunder, thunder clouds in the sky as he says that. Uh, and, but he's, and, and then Sam says, but we are. And it's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered, full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad happened? But in the end, it's only a passing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you that meant something, even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now. Folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't. They kept going because they were holding on to something. And then Frodo says, what are we holding on to, Sam? And I don't like Sam's answer. Sam says that there's something good in the world. That's a terrible answer. You know what the real answer is? We're not holding on to something. Someone is holding on to us. We are his temple. He will never let us go. Let me pray and uh, hand it over to Josh. Father, we just want to uh, turn to you, Lord, in this unique time. And uh, just want to give thanks to you, Lord, for the fact that uh, you've shown us an incredible display of your favor in the cross, Lord. Uh, we, we, we've turned away from you. We live uh, by nature lives that don't have room for you, Lord. But uh, you've turned your son to the cross, Lord. You've taken the splendor of the whole universe and cast him down from heaven to earth to the cross so that you can lift us up from where we are and seat us with you in the heavenly realms. And Lord, we just pray that in this time, Lord, you would remind us, Lord, that you've uh, sent not just your son to the cross, but you've sent uh, your spirit to live in our hearts and that we belong to you and that you've set your seal upon us, Lord, and that this, this would give us so much hope 
in what we're going through, that we would have the freedom to lament uh, freely with, with you in prayer, with one another in community, and that we would know this hope is real and that it would keep us strong and faithful and committed to you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.